In these podcasts, we uncover one chapter after another from the life of the Prophet ﷺ in an attempt to learn about him, to love him, and to better ourselves through his example. Immersion, mentorship, companionship, and tarbiyah. These are just a few of the things we offer alongside knowledge of the prophetic biography at the Sirah Intensive. Two weeks dedicated to the study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ and his noble characteristics. So this winter, join me in Dallas, Texas, alongside your classmates from all over the world to learn the story of the life of the best of humanity, the ultimate mercy to mankind, the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Inshallah, continuing with our series on the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the prophetic biography, Asiratul Nabawiyyah. Uh, in the previous session that we had, uh, we were talking about the Battle of Uhud. And we talked about the beginning of the battle, uh, the arrival of the Mushrikun, basically um, at the outskirts of the city of Medina, and uh, the motivations that they were there for vengeance and revenge. Um, and we also talked about how the Prophet of Allah consulted with the believers, with the Muslims, and the Prophet ﷺ basically, after consulting with everyone, and in initially the, uh, the inclination of the Prophet ﷺ and the opinion of the majority of the senior Sahaba was that we should remain within Medina and basically Medina kind of had a bit of a fortress type of structure to it. You can actually still appreciate it when you go there. Um, so they said that we can basically defend the city of Medina from here and hold everyone off long enough to be able to kind of exhaust them, tire them out, and then hopefully be able to uh, defend Medina in this way. What ended up transpiring and happening as we talked about was that many of the younger companions along with just generally other Sahaba as well who did not have the opportunity to participate in the Battle of Badr and therefore were kind of waiting and looking forward to the next opportunity they insisted that we go out and we fight in the battlefield uh, because we want that same virtue and the same opportunity that the people of Badr had. So after their insistence the Prophet ﷺ basically um, accepts their request and he says, fine, we will go ahead and head out of Medina and fight. Some of the other uh, senior companions basically go to some of these Sahaba and say, look what you did, you really forced the hand of the Prophet ﷺ and you pressured him um, and therefore he doesn't want to disappoint you, so now he's accommodating you, but that is not what his original inclination was. At hearing this and this being emphasized by them, they go back to the Prophet ﷺ and they say, Oh Messenger of God, we apologize, you know, please forgive us, we were too forward, uh, we were too insistent, you know, please, um, you know, let's stay in Medina and fight. And the Prophet ﷺ says, no, once the Messenger of God has basically put on his armor, he doesn't remove it until he's stepped into the battlefield. He has engaged in the battlefield. So at that point in time, the Prophet ﷺ gathers the companions together. We talked about it, where the Prophet ﷺ, there's about a thousand Muslims. And the Prophet ﷺ marches towards 
um, you know, the place of Uhud where the battle takes place. Now, we talked about all of this, and alhamdulillah, you know, the, the blessing and the opportunity was uh, we were able to take the Qalam Umrah uh, trip, the Qalam Umrah group, in the footsteps of the Prophet, where the goal and the objective wasn't just to perform Umrah and visit the Haramain, but to also study the seerah of the Prophet, and the major events of the life of the Prophet at the actual sites. So what's very fascinating is that when you follow the road and the path, uh, I was able to go and see it and visit there. When you follow the path and the road that goes from Medina to the place where Uhud took place, there is a masjid over there on the way. It's a very small masjid, kind of inconspicuous. You won't really notice it. It doesn't stand out. But the locals, the Ahl Medina, basically the original residents of Medina who've kind of inherited the history of Medina from generation to generation, they can actually point it out to you. There is a masjid on the way called Masjid al-Dira'ah. And al-Dira'ah literally refers to armor. And so when they left Medina after all these, um, you know, after all this deliberation, when they finally left Medina, it was evening time almost. And so they didn't reach Uhud, because traveling with a thousand people, as you can imagine, is not very easy. So they ended up spending the nights on the way to Uhud. The Prophet ﷺ had them camp out, that way they could arrive at Uhud early in the morning and you know, basically engage the army earlier in the day. So they end up stopping there, they spend the night there, and from there, what's actually mentioned, and I talked about it last time, The notable thing was that the Prophet ﷺ in the battle of Uhud, he wore two layers of armor. And this basically shows how the Prophet ﷺ, number one, expected the battle to be very fierce. And secondly, it shows that the Prophet ﷺ taught us to take all necessary precautions. You know, they, oftentimes we talk about throwing caution to the wind. That is, not a no, no, that is not an admirable idea in Islam. We're not supposed to throw caution to the wind. We're supposed to be brave and courageous and willing to sacrifice. But we always exercise necessary precaution. And then what happens, happens. You know, what is meant to be, will, will come to pass. That is the will of God, that is the will of Allah. But we are obligated to assume, and to acquire, and to pursue any and all means, and precautions. The famous narration about اِعْقِلْ ثُمَّ تَوَكَّلْ That tie your camel and then put your trust in God. Right, so the Prophet wore two layers of armor. So that place where the Prophet spent that night in the morning, he had the Sahaba strap onto him, a second layer of armor. That place is marked by a masjid that is present there called Masjid al-Dira. Um, and actually in the history of Medina, you know, when you go there, many of those sites don't really remain intact anymore. But Umar bin Abdul Aziz, ta'ala, the great Khalifa, the great leader of the Muslims, who was actually the governor of Medina before he was appointed as Khalifa. He was the governor of Medina before he was appointed Khalifa. He was a very righteous, very pious, very knowledgeable man. He had actually uh, inquired and researched at that time from the Ansar and the children of the Ansar and the Ahl Medina about every single place where the Prophet ﷺ had ever prayed, outside of Masjid Nabawi, of course. But some places we obviously know Masjid Nabawi, uh, Masjid Quba, Masjid Banu Salima. Right, the major masajid of Medina, but outside of that, they had marked more than 70 places where the Prophet had offered salah. And Umar bin Abdul Aziz had masajid constructed at all of those places to commemorate the places where the Prophet had performed salah. And so that is one of the places, Masjid al-Dira'ah. 
Because they prayed Fajr in the morning there and then they set out from there. But what else transpired there that we talked about was that the Munafiqun under the leadership of Abdullah bin Ubay bin Sulul, the leader of the hypocrites, he basically, quote unquote, abandoned the Muslim army uh, with 300 of his allies and followers thinking that he was, you know, thereby inflicting some unexpected, you know, harm uh, upon the Muslims. But nevertheless, he ended up leaving and the Prophet ﷺ said, no concern, no worry, we don't con we're not concerned with them. They don't affect us one way or another. And then we talked about how some of the other tribes of Aus basically became kind of doubtful. They thought about leaving when the 300 people left as well, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala fortified them and strengthened them, and they stuck by the army. So now you have 700 Muslims that approach Uhud. And we talked about the engaging of the battle, how the battle basically started. And again, if you go there, you're able to see we, where the mountain of Uhud is along the... The Muslims put the mountain of Uhud on their, to their backs. And that left a little bit of gap or open area to the left of the army, the left flank of the army. And the, so the left flank of the army, there's a little hill. There's a little hill which is called Jabal al-Aynayn. Actually, before the Battle of Uhud, it used to be called Jabal al-Aynayn. And the reason was called Jabal al-Aynayn, when you actually look at it, there's a little bit of a dip in it. So it's almost like two eyes. So they would call it Jabal al-Aynayn. One is a little bit bigger than the other, but it's a little bit of a dip in the middle. Um, now, of course, after the Battle of Uhud, it is famously known as Jabal al-Rumat. Jabal al-Rumat. The mountain of the archers, the hill of the archers. So the Prophet ﷺ appointed 50 archers there under the guidance and leadership of Abdullah bin Jahash radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And basically the Prophet ﷺ instructed them, do not leave, do not move, do not, um, you know, leave, do not remove, uh, do not leave this spot, this position, uh, until I personally come and get you. And the Prophet ﷺ said, even if you see us winning or you see them killing us, in the battlefield, do not come down from this spot. And we'll talk about basically what transpired um, probably in the next session, inshallah. But that's what we talked about. Uh, the army of the mushrikun, um, uh, the Quraysh, basically approached from the other side, the opposite side. What's also very fascinating is that when, you're, when you look, go and look at it, Uhud is to the north of Medina. Uhud is to the north of Medina. The reason why the army of the Quraysh came from the north and the Muslims knew it was going to come from the north is because to the south of Medina, basically, you, it's very, it was very dense forest. They were all date palm trees and gardens and orchards and things like that. So there were a lot of walls. There were a dense, thick you know, foliage and forest. And so it wasn't really practical for a huge army. The, the, the Quraysh were coming with about 3,000 people. So it was not practical for 3,000 people to be able to walk through this area that is walled off with gardens and thick forests and trees. It just wasn't practical. They could not come from the east or the west because basically Medina, that region, previously, historically, was basically a volcanic region. And you can actually still see effects and traces of that till today. And so now a lot of it, the earth has been cleared out to, you know, development and roads and homes and things like that. But previously what would happen is that there was very rough terrain. 
Very uneven and rough terrain. That was basically the remnants of the old volcanic region that it was. And it's called basically Harratul Sharq wa Harratul Gharb. The eastern Harra. Harra literally means heat. So what they meant by that is the volcanic remnants on the east and of the west. So that again was not, it was very treacherous land, it was very uneven, it was very sharp and difficult. So animals and people and would have a very difficult time walking through there, particularly animals. So the north was really the only access point. So they knew that they were going to be coming from the north. That's why the Muslims went straight out to Uhud. Plus the Prophet had intelligence, intel from the scouts that he had sent out outside of Medina. Nevertheless, they positioned themselves there and we talked about how the battle of Uhud got started. Uh, we talked about some of the initial you know, fighting that took place. We talked about the story of Abu Dujana, um, you know, the brave warrior, the, the fierce fighter of the Ansar, and how he was wreaking havoc on the army of the Meccans and the Quraysh. And at this particular time, today what we're going to be talking about, inshallah, uh, as much as the time permits, um, is we're going to be speaking about Hamza bin Abdul Muttalib radiallahu ta'ala anhu. One of the, you know, uh, major uh, events or one of the major uh, issues pertaining to the Battle of Uhud is basically the death, the martyrdom, the, uh, the, 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 the shahada of Hamza bin Abdul Muttalib radiallahu ta'ala anhu. A little bit of a brief, you know, kind of a reminder and a little bit of a brief review. Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu is the uncle of the Prophet sallallahu He is the younger brother of the father of the Prophet sallallahu The younger brother of the father of the Prophet Am, uncle, chacha, right? So he's the uncle of the Prophet sallallahu Now, being an uncle, however, since he was significantly younger, he was, he was significantly younger, he was not a lot older than the Prophet ﷺ. He was not a lot older than the Prophet ﷺ. So the Prophet ﷺ and him always had that very interesting relationship where you have kind of the uncle that's not a lot older than you, that's more like a big brother or an older friend, rather than an uncle, father type figure. But like a big brother type figure, the kind that you know you go outside and throw a ball with, the one that you, the kind that you hang out with, the one that teaches you how to drive, ride a horse, or whatever it may be. It was that type of a relationship. It was very interesting. On top of that, they were actually milk brothers, radai brothers, foster brothers, if you will, meaning that they had both been nursed by the same woman, and the woman was Thuwaiba, radiallahu ta'ala anha. Some books of Sirah say that she ended up accepting Islam. Nevertheless, um, they were nursed by the same woman, so they were actually foster brothers. And that added to their relationship. And of course, we talked about how Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu became Muslim. Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu became Muslim by defending the Prophet The famous incident where he comes back from a hunting trip and uh, you know, one of his uh, servants ends up informing him that you know, um, you act like such a big man, such a big brave warrior and hunter and man, but yet your own brother is so, just so, uh, you know, severely disrespected. He's treated so disrespectfully in public, and yet you do nothing. You have no shame. So he's like, well, why is his servant shaming me? Well, what happened? And then he finds out that Abu Jahl that day had just really crossed 
another line and gone to a whole other level in insulting the Prophet And he goes and he basically hits, beats up Abu Jahl basically and defends the honor of the Prophet and declares his Islam. Later on he eventually meets with the Prophet and truly does end up accepting Islam. Islam enters his heart. And from that day forward he was basically one of the defenders of the Prophet And he was a cause of great confidence and a boost to the morale of the Muslims. And he similarly performed the migration, the hijrah, and was basically like the right hand of the Prophet One of the closest of his family members who was with him by his side. So Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu, suffice to say, was very beloved to the Prophet He had been instrumental. Of course, we know that the Battle of Badr was a huge miracle and a great victory from Allah. But nevertheless, Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu, even though there were angels fighting in the battlefield, he still played a very prominent role. That's just the type of man that he was. And so here in the battle of Uhud, of course, you know, he was there again. And um, Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu, they had the mubaraza, where they would basically have the kind of showdown or the little bit of a face-off in the middle before the battle would actually commence. And Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu went out there and struck down whoever they sent forth. Um, immediately, in the blink of an eye, whoever they sent forth to basically fight against him. Then when the battle actually commenced, Wahshi, who I'll be talking about in just a second, but he basically observes about Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he says about him, he says, Ka'anni andru ilayhi. He said, Wallahi inni la andru ila Hamza. He says, I swear to God, I was looking at Hamza, he was just, you know, just removing entire groups of people with his sword. He was just scattering people with his sword. And and nobody could even touch him, lay a finger on him. He was like a huge, humongous camel, kind of like bulldozing his way through a group of people. He was a man amongst boys. Right? He was like a bulldozer just tearing through people. And he was just a force to be reckoned with. Also, what's said about Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu when Wahshi is making this observation about him, Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu by that time, in the very beginning of the battle, had already killed single handedly, he had struck down 31 of the opposing army. He had taken out 31 people. Alright, so one man had taken out 31 of the other side. So whatever odds that there might have been 700 to 3,000, well now it just became one for every 31. And so the Muslims were not worried at all. And so this was Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu, just wreaking havoc on their entire army. Now Wahshi comes into the picture. Who is Wahshi? Wahshi was an Abyssinian slave, an African slave, who belonged to Jubair bin Mut'im who belonged to Jubair bin Mut'im um, and he was uh, he belonged to him and he actually says he relates his story himself actually I should share this with you so two sahaba they actually say that um, Jafar bin Amr ibn Umayyah al-Damri he and Ubaidullah ibn Adi, radiallahu ta'ala anhumah, they say that 
at the time fi zamani Muawiyah at the time of the Khilafah of Muawiyah radiallahu ta'ala anhu so this is basically now what they're relating is about you know about 40 years 40 plus years after the battle of Uhud 40 plus years after the battle of Uhud they are traveling and they said that we were traveling through the lands of Asham. We were traveling through the lands of Asham. So we passed through the area of Hims. We passed through the area of Hims. And Wahshi lived there. We had heard that Wahshi lives in this area. So we were very curious. So we were looking for him and eventually we came across a home. This, there was a lot of land and there was a home on there. And we went there and we found Wahshi to be there. So Abdullah bin Adi, Ubaidullah bin Adi, excuse me, he says that we, we found him and we asked him that, is it, you know, he says, I asked him, is that actually you? And he says, yes. And then Wahshi tells him that, you know, I recognize you as well. Now, Ubaidullah bin Adi, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he said that we were traveling through the desert. And a lot of times when we would be traveling to kind of protect yourself from dust and things like that, what they would do is that they would wrap up their faces. They would wrap up their faces completely, just kind of leave their eyes open. Right? And so that they could travel and they wouldn't be breathing in a lot of dust and things like that. So he said, my face was completely wrapped up and we walk up to Wahshi and he says, he describes him, he says that he was very, very old and frail at this time. He was very old and very frail. So he says, I asked him, are you Wahshi? And he says, yes. And he says, and you are Ubaidullah bin Adi. He said, yeah, how, how'd you know? How'd you recognize? He said, I haven't seen you for like 50 years. You don't even remember. You won't even remember. I remember you when you were a child. And I recognize you from your feet when you were a child. And that tells you kind of wahshi how observant he was, how intelligent he was. Sharp as an arrow. Very, very intelligent. So nevertheless, they sit down with him and they said that by this time wahshi was of course Muslim. So they asked him, فَسَأَلَهُ عَنْ قَتْلِ حَمْزَةَ كَيْفَ قَتَلْتَهُ Please tell me the story of how you killed the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ. We've heard the stories. We want to hear from you. So he says that, okay, if you would like for me to tell you, um, he's, they, they insist, they say, yes, please tell us, inform us. So at that point in time, he informs them, he says, I'm going to tell you the story I will tell you the story just as I told the Prophet when he asked me. He says that I was a slave. I belonged to a man by the name of Jubair bin Mut'im. And he says that his uncle, Tu'aymat ibn Adi, was killed in the Battle of Badr by the hands of Hamza radiallahu anhu. So he says that Jubair told me before the Battle of Uhud, you know, I, he knew that I was kind of like an expert marksman. I was like a sniper. I could hit a moving target 
from a you know a hundred feet away with my spear. I had like these the the African spears that they would use were not like big like the Arab spears that were as tall as a person's height five six feet long, but they would have like these small mini spears almost kind of like large darts if you will like arrows, but they would throw them with their hands like in a full body motion with a lot of power and a lot of strength almost like think of like a fastball pitcher in baseball they would load up and they would launch it and so 100 miles per hour type of heat and so he knew that I was an expert marksman because on days of celebration things like that he would kind of loan me out or hire me out to people to perform these tricks and you know kind of uh, entertainment so he was aware of that and he said, إِنْ قَتَلْتَ حَمْزَةَ عَمَّ مُحَمَّدَ صَلَّى اللَّهِ سَنْ بِعَمِّي فَأَنْتَ عَتِيقٌ He says, if you can kill the uncle of Muhammad sallam in exchange for the killing of my uncle, then you are free, I guarantee your freedom. So he says that I went out with the people. I went out with the people. Some narrations also mention that um, even though Ibn Kathir ta'ala doesn't choose to mention those narrations because um, he doesn't find them to be authentic enough. But some narrations in other books of Sirah also mention that Hind bint Utbah, whose father, uncle, and brother were all killed by Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu in the battle of Badr. She on top of that made a promise to uh, Wahshi that if you end up killing Hamza fine Jubaid will free you but I will give you money on top of that so that you will be a rich man not only a free man but a rich man so he says okay so he says that I went out with the army and I had no other purpose other than Hamza that's it that's why I was there so he says that when the battle started and he talks about this, he says that I hid behind kind of like a rock in a boulder or a boulder. I kind of hid behind some rocks. And I was spying on Hamza, just keeping my eye on him. And I saw him just tearing through the army, just on a rampage. But I needed him to get closer so that he'd be in my kind of target range. When he got close enough, he says that I basically stepped forward you know, in my motion, I stepped forward and I launched that spear, that dart. And he says that this, this was the strength of Wahshi and how uh, amazing his technique was. He says that it hit him in the navel, because Hamza was a huge man, right? And he was so good with the sword, so good with the sword that if I would have thrown it higher, he probably would have blocked it. So I had to aim low. So I aimed for like his waist, like navel. And Wahshi says that it went in one side and came out the other side. Like I tore a hole through him. And he says as soon as I hit him, he kind of, you know, stopped in his tracks. And he said he looked at me, saw me, and started to walk towards me. He said, at that moment, my heart like jumped out, of my, jumped out of my chest. I was like, oh no. But he said he took a few steps and he fell. And he laid on the ground kind of for a while. And he said, I stayed nearby. I dare not go close to him. Because Hamza lying on the ground was still more dangerous than most people on their feet. So he said, I waited and waited and waited until I finally saw the life leave him. I saw him die. I watched him die. And he said that then I went and I retrieved my spear and 
I immediately left the battlefield. I went back to the camp and I sat down there, waited for the return back to Mecca to retrieve my reward. I was, he says, he actually says that, وَلَمْ يَكُنْ لِي بِغَيْرِهِ حَاجَةٌ I had no other business there on that day except for Hamza. So he says, I went back to Mecca and I was freed, I received the money and I lived in Mecca. Why not? I was familiar with the place, I knew a lot of people, now I was free, I had money, so why not? I just lived in, Hamza, uh, I lived in Mecca. He says, until the Prophet ﷺ, you know, six years later, would come for Fatih Mecca, the conquest of Mecca. And when he came for the conquest of Mecca, I said, I need to get out of town. I need to get out of Dodge. Right? Because if Muhammad ﷺ finds me, then I don't know what he'll do with me. He was a Muslim at this time. So he says that I fled to Ta'if. I said, Ta'if's the place to go to. He says, but what ended up happening was that the wafd of Ta'if comes to the Prophet ﷺ and accepts Islam. And then, you know, the battle of Hunayn, the battle of Ta'if takes place as well. And I'm like, well, it's not safe for me here either. So he says, it's like the earth was like closing in on me. So he says that I said to myself, I should go to Asham or Yemen or somewhere else. But I need to get out of here. So he says, I was trying to figure out where I should go until somebody told me that, what are you, what's wrong with you? Wayhak. إِنَّهُ وَاللَّهِ مَا يَقْتُلُ أَحَدًا مِنَ النَّاسِ دَخْلَ فِي دِينِهِ وَشَهِدَ شَهَادَةَ الْحَقِّ If you fear for your life, then you should know. There's one thing that you can do to gain immunity and to gain protection. Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam will not kill somebody who enters into his deen, his religion, and testifies to its truth, becomes a Muslim. He will not kill a Muslim, no matter what you've done in the past. That's how they operate. That's their policy. So I said that, okay, let me explore this opportunity. So he says, I went to Medina. Straight up. I went to Medina and I kind of covered up myself, cloaked up myself. And I went to the Prophet ﷺ and I stood before him. And I said that, Ashhadu shahadat al-haq. I gave the testimony of faith. So when the Prophet ﷺ looked up at me, he said, Awahshi? Wahshi? Is that you? So I said, Naam ya Rasulullah. I said, Yes, O Messenger of God. The Prophet ﷺ said, Uqud, fahadithni, kayfaqatalta hamza. Sit, sit right here. Tell me, how did you kill Hamza? Tell me, how did my uncle die? And he says that I told, فَحَدَّثْتُهُ كَمَا حَدَّثْتُكُمَا I told him, just as I'm telling the both of you. فَلَمَّا فَرَقْتُ مِنْ حَدِيثِي When I finished telling him the story, the Prophet ﷺ said, وَيْحَكْ he said, Wahshi. غَيِّبْ عَنِّي وَجْهَكَ فَلَا أَرَيَنَّكَ He said, please, just kind of give me some space. I, I can't. I can't look into the eyes that watched my uncle breathe his last. I, I, I'm having trouble. You know, just sitting across this close to the person who took my uncle away from me. 
It's tough. And you know, a lot of times, there's, there's, I always get asked this question, right? How is that fair? Why didn't he forgive? No, no, he forgave, didn't he? Didn't he? He absolutely forgave. Is he killing Washi? Is he imprisoning him? Is he torturing him? Is he beating him? Is he exiling him? Is he ostracizing him? No, no, no. So he forgave him. Probably more than anybody else would ever be willing to. But the Prophet ﷺ is also displaying his humanity. He said, when I, when, I, when I sit across from you, all I can think about is the dead mutilated body of my uncle. That's what I see when I look at you. It's tough, I'm a human being. You have to understand. So it's very, very human, it's very powerful. It's very real. And so, Wahshi says that, I used to kind of sit to the side of the Prophet ﷺ to just not trouble him. Until, and he says, I stayed in Medina until the Prophet ﷺ passed away. For two years, I stayed there. Benefiting, learning, praying behind him, listening to him, so on and so forth. So that tells you again, the Prophet ﷺ was extremely accommodating and forgiving. Wahshi basically became a part of his community. Became one of his followers, his congregants, his students. Which one of us would take the murder of a family member and say, Ahlan was Ahlan marhaban bikum. Please join my congregation. Please be and sit in my class. Be one of my students. Which one of us would have the heart to do that? Right? So this was the messenger of Allah So he says that, finally when the Muslims eventually, in the time of Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu, on the, on the day of Yamama, the battle of Yamama, which were basically known as the Harbur Ridda, the apostasy wars, right? The tribes that had apostated and amongst them primarily, chief amongst them was Musaylama al-Kadhab, Musaylama the liar. He was a false prophet, plain prophethood. He had actually come to Medina during the lifetime of the Prophet and tried to negotiate a deal with the Prophet I'll take half, you take half. I'll be prophet for half the world, you be prophet for half the world. The Prophet ﷺ said, leave before I hurt you. Right? And so he dismissed him. So this Musaylama basically was kind of riling up these tribes that were apostatizing. So he says that I went out on that day and when the armies met, Wahshi was very good at this. He was like sniper, stealth. He'd move about the battlefield in the army, nobody would even notice him. He had a way about things. So he says that I, I basically went back to my old tactics. I went into stealth mode. I started moving about the battlefield. I had one goal, one target. I gotta find Musaylama. So he said, when I spotted Musaylama, qa'iman fi yadihi a safe, he was standing there holding a sword in his hands. But he says that he wasn't a very skilled fighter. So he says that I got prepped, I got ready, I found a spot, made sure I, he was within my, you know, range. And he says that I was basically about to get into my stance, like load up and launch the spear towards him. And I saw that another man amongst the Ansar, he appeared, started to bull rush. 
Musaylama. Like, you know, they, like, uh, they, you know they, they say the expression, a bat out of hell. Right? Like a bullet out of, like a cannonball out of a cannon just shot out at Musaylama. Shotgun. You're just going at him. Right? And I was actually quite taken aback by how like powerful and fast this man was. Just bull rushing Musaylama. Running through people. So he says that I loaded up even more quickly and I launched my spear and it struck Musaylama in the chest and came out his back. Like he tore a hole through a man. And he says, I launched my spear and it just tore straight through him. And he says, as soon as it tore straight through him, he kind of stumbled back and the second my spear went through him, that a wrecking ball of a human being that was rushing towards him, he collided into him and just completely finished him off with his sword. And so he says that I needed to beat that Ansari and I needed to be the first one to strike Musaylama. I had to do it. It was my penance. See, inna al-Islam yahdimu ma kana qabla. Islam eradicates and removes anything that happened before it. Allah had forgiven me, the Messenger had forgiven me, it was wiped from my record that I had killed one of the greatest men that ever walked the face of this earth, Hamza bin Abdul Muttalib radiallahu anhu. Sayyidu Shuhada, Hamza. Asadullahi wa asadu Rasuli. The Lion of God and His Messenger. The leader of all the marchers. God had forgiven me. But I felt I needed to do something to redeem myself. Like for myself, not for Allah. Allah didn't ask anything of me. Muhammad Rasulullah did not hold anything against me. But I needed to do it for myself. I needed to prove to myself that I was not a bad person. That I just wasn't going to be known for doing one of the most hurtful things to the Prophet Like I would have something, like I was worth something, I could contribute something. I wasn't the man who made the Prophet cry. I wasn't just that man. I needed to know that I could be more. So he said, I had to hit Musaylama before that man could get there. And I did. My spear tore straight through him. The second I left his body, this wrecking ball of a human being hit Musaylama and finished him off. He says that as soon as that man finished him off and he turned around, guess who it was? Abu Dujana. Of all people, it was Abu Dujana. And so, one of the remarkable things that I wanted to mention here today was that, and I didn't mention this before because I wanted to kind of really emphasize this point. Wahshi, when he recounts the story of Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu, killing Hamza, he says that when I threw my spear and it tore through Hamza, Remember I mentioned that I waited until I made sure Hamza was dead and I went back and retrieved my spear? He said, I kept that spear. I don't know why. I don't know why. He doesn't give a reason. No reason. Why? But I kept that spear. And he said, that was the same exact spear that I used to kill Musaylama. That was why. I was meant to retrieve it. So I could redeem myself. 
using the same weapon. And you know what's fascinating? It's not like maybe it was just his weapon or he was attached to it, kind of like a favorite sword or something like that. Right? After he throws the spear that kills Musaylama, he doesn't go back and retrieve it. This is done. I've done what I was supposed to. That spear has fulfilled its maqsad, its purpose. And so he used to say after that, he says, فَإِن كُنْتُ قَتَلْتُهُ فَقَدْ قَتَلْتُ خَيْرَ النَّاسِ بَعْدَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم وَقَتَلْتُ شَرَّ النَّاسِ He says that if I indeed killed Musaylama, then I killed the best of the people after Muhammad وسلم, which was Hamza, and I also killed the worst of the people which was Musaylama, the false prophet. And so eventually, what's mentioned about Wahshi is that Wahshi, um, you know, after killing Musaylama, once he felt that he had basically redeemed himself, he eventually moved uh, to Hims in Asham in Syria, kind of lived a little bit like what we would consider like kind of on a ranch, you know, kind of out, outside of the city. He lived a little bit outside of there. And he basically lived out the, less, the rest of his days there. And eventually he died in the place of Hims. He died there, passed away there, and is buried there. So this is the story of the Shahada, the martyrdom of Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And Wahshi and how he exactly was a part of the killing and the assassination of Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu. One of the things that we're going to be talking about and we're going to discuss a little bit later, I'd like to try to keep the chronology of the events as much as possible. Uh, we're going to talk about more events in the battlefield such as you know, the death of some of the other uh, key companions. We'll talk about the injuries to the Prophet the abandoning of the archers from their post and basically what transpired afterwards, how eventually the battle concluded. Um, and then we'll come back to then talking about the martyrs who died and their burials and how the Prophet ﷺ basically, you know, um, handled everyone's death and everything. And at that, that, that point in time, we'll come back to talking about uh, Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu and how the Prophet ﷺ buried him and how pained the Prophet ﷺ was at seeing the body of Hamza and burying Hamza and departing from Hamza and how much pain it caused the Prophet ﷺ very visibly and very profoundly. So inshallah we'll go, uh, talk about that in the coming sessions. We'll go ahead and end and conclude here inshallah. In the next session then we'll talk about some of the other deaths and also the injury to the Prophet ﷺ, which again I was able to, you know, on the, the Qalam Umrah trip, able to go there and see the specific spots and places, you know, where the Prophet ﷺ was basically placed when he was injured and he was bleeding and actually places where he bled and those places are marked and um, you know are still observable till today so you're able to really study the history and see exactly how the battle played out and it's very fascinating very remarkable so inshallah we'll talk about that in the coming session may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the ability to practice everything that was said and heard and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless us with the love of Allah and his messenger sallallahu alayhi
Very good, alhamdulillah. Very, very good. Very beneficial, alhamdulillah.